Amen. Well, guys, welcome to The Grove. Uh, my name is Caleb Brazier. It is great to be back. Uh, it has been, goodness, four weeks. Um, the longest stretch uh, I've had being away, it's just been, it has been a month, we will say. Our um, uh, newest boy was born a few weeks ago, Brooks uh, Cameron Brazier is now in the world, and so he is here, and that was a large transition. You would think that that was all the Lord had for us this past month. It was not. Uh, shortly after that, I blew my back out like a good middle-aged man uh, should do, and so I uh, herniated two of my discs and could barely walk. Still dealing with that as the outward body is wasting away, but the inward body is being renewed day by day. Um, and you would think that would be all the Lord would have for us this past month. Well, it was not, uh, as then um, Garrett Wood, our worship leader, was diagnosed with COVID a number of weeks ago. So I isolated because I was with him in the office and thought, oh, well, we made it out of isolation. So I'm good. I didn't get it in isolation. Went back in the world for two days. And then I tested positive for COVID. And, uh, and so then I went away for, for uh, 10 days into my quarantine. So it has been a month. The Lord has been kind through it. Um, I never lost my sense of taste or smell, which is unique. I've been talking to some people this morning that got it nine months ago and still don't have their taste and smell back. And so grateful for God's grace in that battling fever and fatigue. Boy, fatigue was real and continues to be real. Uh, I did not realize how much that I would need to sleep throughout that and continue to. Um, and I'm sure 12 years from now, Leah, the COVID fatigue is still going to be very real as I'll continue to need naps every, every single day. I'm going to continue to milk that one. Uh, but no, God has been gracious and it's great to, be, great to be back. I've gotten on the other side of all of that. Um, it hasn't spread throughout the rest of our family, which has been, which has been incredible, a huge grace, especially with a newborn. Um, and I am slowly learning to walk and pick up things again. So uh, but it is just great to be back. I have missed you. Uh, it has been uh, difficult being away, uh, and it's just so great seeing so many faces again this morning. As we get to jump back into them, First uh, Timothy, uh, as we have been uh, walking through this book for the last number of weeks, uh, we continue in our study through First Timothy 4, and we'll be in verses 11 through 16 this morning. So you got your Bibles, you can flip there. Uh, I'll meet you over there. We'll be in verses 11 through 16. Uh, this morning. Remember, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, his first letter that we have recorded to uh, his young protege, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a young pastor in the city, Ephesus. It was a, a large, growing metropolitan city. And Timothy was there overseeing the church there. And Paul's writing this letter to his young protege to give him instruction to be able to set the household of God in order, right? That was the, the purpose statement we saw back in chapter 3, verse 15. Paul wanted to write so that you will know, Timothy, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. This is Paul's purpose in writing this letter, that Timothy would know how the church should be ordered and structured. And so this is helpful. It's helpful for me as a pastor, for us as church leaders, but also for you as church members, people who come to church. It's important for us to know how God has told us the church should be ordered, how the church should be structured, and what the church should be like. And so as Paul writes here, he's writing specifically now in this section in verses 11 through 16, giving instructions for ministry. This is what he's writing to Timothy to give him now some specific instructions for what his life looks like within ministry. So what I want us to do today is walk through this section, looking at every verse, 
And at the end, see the way that it then applies both to our church, but also to us individually as Christians. So we'll be walking through this verse by verse uh, here this morning. It's one of the things that marks us as a church is we're expository preachers. Uh, That means the majority of time we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, phrase by phrase through books of the Bible. And so today I want us to walk then verse by verse through this section. So in verse 11, you see Paul begin. Paul begins here and he tells Timothy, Timothy, command and teach these things. So you hear right at the beginning of this section, Paul has an emphasis on what? On teaching, on on proper teaching, sound teaching, on proper commands, making sure that Timothy is saying what it is that God wants him to say, the importance of teaching. Well, what are the things that Timothy are supposed to teach? Well, he continues then in verse 12. He tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. And so you can hear, you hear the implication here. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, don't let people despise you because of your youth. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because Timothy's young. We don't know exactly what age, but he's probably somewhere in his uh, mid-30s. And especially as someone in this culture um, that highly esteems in first century, highly esteems age and experience and wisdom, there may have been a proclivity for people to not take Timothy very seriously. Here's just some kid that has two herniated discs and doesn't know what he's doing uh, up here as the pastor. We're not going to listen to him. What does he know? And there is a sense that might look down on Timothy Because of his youth. And Paul tells him, Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. Why? Because what makes someone an effective Christian is not the age or the number next to your name. What makes someone a strong and effective Christian is how much they look like Jesus. And there is no age barrier to that. Of course, age brings experience and wisdom. But just because we get older does not mean we get godlier. Those two do not go hand in hand. And that's why often I think we can see in examples of children, in youth, some of the greatest examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Goodness, you look at missions, um, missions, uh, I keep wanting to say the word outbreak, and I don't, and I'm not trying not to, but there it is missions, outbreaks, missions, explosions, uh, missions. Um, things whenever a lot of people get excited about global missions throughout church history. Again, outbreak is not the word to use right there. Uh, But whenever a lot of people in church history get excited about global missions, do you know almost without fail the age group that that movement begins with? High schoolers, college-age students, people whom others in the church might look at it and go, oh, what do they know? these kids but what often high schoolers and younger people know that sometimes as we grow into adults we forget is that God is calling us not to have our lives together not to be this perfect uh, example and uh, have everything kind of pieced together rightly God is calling us to come with open hands and blank checks and he says give me those people I may not have their lives together They may not have all the right things to say, but they have come with total abandonment of their lives 
and have given me a blank check to say, Jesus, I want to follow you and I want you to use me. And however you do that, I'm game. And God says, those are the people that I want. And so, friends, if you're here, maybe you're, maybe you're here today, you're in elementary school, middle school, high school. And here's what I hope you hear in 1 Timothy verse 12. Don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. Run after Jesus. Want desire to know him, be known by him, and to make him known. Don't believe the lie that God can't use you. Just look at Jesus' ministry and you'll hear his heart for children. Let the children come. The older adults who had everything together were trying to keep the children away. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. Let the children come to me. Jesus knew the openness and the abandonment that often comes with people who are in their youth. And Paul knew the same thing here as he writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, young Timothy, don't let people despise you for your youth. And so what's the then corrective that Paul gives to Timothy? What's our corrective typically? If we're in positions of authority, whether maybe as a pastor or a parent, a teacher, maybe a job, you're a boss, and someone that you have authority over begins to buck against your authority or question your authority or belittle your authority, what is our natural response? Right? Well, depraved Caleb in those moments comes out, and what he wants to do is kind of buck up against that, kind of flex a little bit. To kind of uh, uh, bring in those moments, no, 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 you should listen to me. Uh, there's this part of us that in those moments when authority is questioned, we want to rise up in defensiveness. We want to rise up and really assert our authority. That is the temptation. And notice Paul here in 1 Timothy 4 doesn't tell Timothy, hey, don't let anyone despise for your youth. But Timothy, you show them you're the man. You show them the scriptures that you know that I've taught you, that your mother and your grandmother have taught you from your infancy. You show them how well learned you are. You can even say learned. That shows you how smart you are. You can, you can go and show them that, Timothy. Don't let them despise you for your youth, but rise up and show them that you deserve to be there. That's not what Paul says, is it? No, Paul says don't let anyone despise you for your youth. And here's the corrective. But, Timothy, set an example for the believers. Paul says, Timothy, if there are people who are questioning your authority, who are looking down on you because of your age, don't buck up against that. Set an example for them. Live your life in such a way that your life rises above their criticism. Set an example for them and notice these five different things. Paul gets really practical here. Set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy set an example. Now, again, think about that phrase. Paul's saying, live a life that is exemplary, one that is worthy to rise up and for other people to be able to say, I should live like that. Set an example in these ways, in speech, in what you say. Not just with how we live, but also with what it is we say. Friends, what example does your speech set? The things that you say, both in person, in public, in private, or online. What does your speech say? Even whenever we're behind closed doors with our close friends, is our speech building up or is it tearing down? 
Is our speech exemplary? Goodness, are on social media the things that we say? What's the example that we're setting with our speech online? I was reading, just opened up my Bible this morning for a sound check and started reading through Proverbs 18. And I couldn't believe just the, the practicality of Proverbs. It's always there, but especially for our age today. In Proverbs 18, verse 2, the author says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only wants to show off his opinions. I'm like, boy, that's social media right there in a verse, isn't it? A fool doesn't delight in understanding, but only wants to show off his opinions. I want people to be able to see what I believe, what I think. I've got it all figured out. That doesn't mean we don't say things that we believe. It doesn't mean we don't have convictions. But it may, we want to make sure that our speech is setting an example. And not just our speech, but also our conduct. How we live. How we act with our spouses, with our children, in our jobs with our neighbors, what kind of example is your conduct setting? The things that you do. Also called to set an example in love. Now that's a word that, again, has been hijacked by our culture today. Biblically, love is not just being nice to people. That's often, I think, what it can feel like. To love someone means you're just nice to them. You don't ever disagree. You don't ever maybe bring up a different opinion. You certainly don't say something that might ruffle feathers. That's not loving. But what we see in the Bible that love is beyond some kind of fleeting emotion, beyond just being nice to one another, or having these feelings of romance where everything's butterflies and rainbows and pixie dust. Love in the scriptures is a decisive choice to be able to put someone else above ourselves. As to look at someone else and go, I think that your life is more important than mine. And I will come to serve you and love you. And that decision to love is often just that, a decision. It's not always followed with uh, feelings of emotion and butterflies and romance. But it is a choice to care for someone more than you care for yourself. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy to say, Timothy, you are to be an example of love. Within your church. Again, friends, what does your choice to love others say about the God that you serve? What kind of example are you setting in love? We're also called to set an example in faith. And what it is we believe. And the hope that we have in God. To be able to see that we are striving to believe in the things that are promised. Having hope in the things that we cannot see. What kind of example are you setting in faith? And finally, set an example in purity. Paul is challenging young Timothy here that in those moments whenever people come and may despise you for your youth or question you or challenge you, Timothy, in response to that, set an example and live a pure life, a holy life, a life that looks like Jesus. That that is the response then that you are to have, Timothy, in those moments. Be an example be worthy to be able to be held up and for others to be able to say, he is one in which I want to be like in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. But not, Timothy, just because of how good you are. Right? What does a biblical example of, of uh, imitation look like? Well, it looks like what Paul wrote the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He tells them, imitate me. 
Paul sees himself as an example. Imitate me, but only as far as how. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now Paul says, Timothy, he's writing the same thing here. Timothy would have known this. He's not telling Timothy, Timothy, you just pull your bootstraps up and be awesome, man. And then you go be an example and tell everybody, hey, look like me. Be like me. I'm the example. I'm the hero. Paul's telling Timothy here, no, be an example, yes. Tell others to be able to imitate you, yes. But only as much as you are imitating Christ. Because the hero of every church is not a senior pastor. It's not a children's ministry. It's not a gifted musician. The hero of every church is the man, Jesus Christ. And so we hold him up. And the ones that are imitating him, we then have earthly examples to be able to also say, hey, imitate that brother, imitate that sister as they imitate Christ. As they then are examples, as their speech sounds like Jesus, as their conduct looks like Jesus, as their love feels like Jesus, as their faith believes like Jesus, and their purity, it feels and looks and smells and also operates like Jesus as well. That this is what Paul is writing here to Timothy. And friends, it's the same for me as a pastor, it's the same for every single one of us as Christians to ask the question, What are we setting examples for today in all of our lives? Is this the way in which we respond? Even in moments when authority may be questioned, do we rise to set an example for believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity? Has the gospel of Jesus Christ permeated into every aspect of our life? Or do we kind of segment Jesus over on Sundays? You get Jesus on Sundays sometimes, but he's not going to change the way I talk or drive on Highway 50 or go to Disney World or moments and battles of doubt and faith. No, friends, one of the things we know about the gospel is the gospel is not segmented. Jesus does not get a slice of our pie. Whenever we follow Jesus, we follow him as king and we say, Jesus, here's my life. Take it. Take all of it. It's yours. And in every aspect, then, do we set an example in every aspect of our life? Paul continues then, and he shifts now. Verse 12, he's told him the importance of not being despised for your youth, but the example that we should set. 13, he continues then in these instructions for ministry and tells him, Now, Timothy, until I come, make sure and do these things. Give your attention to what? To public reading, to exhortation or to preaching, and teaching. So now he shifts to Timothy and says, okay, Timothy, make sure that your life is an example, that your life has been changed and altered because of Jesus. But also make sure that within your life, in this church, be sure to what? To give attention, to give your attention, to pay close attention to public reading, to exhortation, and to teaching. And you hear Paul's emphasis on the importance of knowing God's word, hearing God's word, teaching God's word and applying God's word. It's central to Paul's ministry. And he's writing here to Timothy, it should be central to his. Pay attention to public reading. And one of the reasons why we read scripture publicly every Sunday, even whenever you know, sometimes the sermon, the sermon passages may be longer. If you were with us whenever we went through First and Second Samuel, goodness, there were some times we were reading 70, 80, 90 verses on a Sunday morning. 
People are like, why, why are you reading the Bible? And for me, I've always just gone, because it's, we're supposed to. Don't neglect public reading. People go, well, it's boring. I'm like, well, that's our problem, not the book. Maybe the reader's problem. I think, that, uh, you know, I think that reading is an important ministry of the church. Public reading is an important ministry of the church. So anyone here that's read publicly on a Sunday morning has gotten an email that helps teach and prepare to be able to come up and read. And maybe you've gotten overwhelmed by that email because there's a lot to it. But we believe it's important because it's one of the things Paul said, give your attention to, to public reading. Friends, it's the most important thing we do here on a Sunday morning. Read God's word and hear from him. And then I talk about it for a little while. We sing songs. All of that is important. But the crowning moment is we come up and open God's word and hear from him. And so we want to make sure that we give our attention to public reading. But also then after reading, then exhorting, preaching, applying. Making sure then that that text is understood. Right? To make plain sense out of it. This is what Nehemiah did. And Ezra, during the time of renewal in Israel, Ezra got up, opened the scriptures, read them, and then made, made plain sense of the text. This is what we are to give our attention to, to exhortation and to teaching. I guess you're not just that there's preaching and proclamation, but also teaching, that we understand and know what this Bible says. Because sometimes it can get difficult. Sometimes it can be complicated. And so we want to make sure on Sundays and in classes outside of here that we are giving attention to teaching. So one of the reasons why for us as a church, as we look to the future, one of the questions we're asking as elders is what are ways we can continue to grow the teaching ministry here in this church? What are other opportunities and avenues for education? All right, so we're looking at developing and implementing Sunday school next year. Sunday school, that's so old school. Well, yeah, it is, but we want to try to create opportunities in which we're not neglecting teaching. We don't think teaching is a bad thing for a number of reasons. One, in this text specifically, Paul says, give your attention to it. But also, again, we look at the great commission of Jesus Christ, the mission that he's given his disciples and he's told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then do what? Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. This is part and parcel of the mission that Jesus has given us. And so we don't shrink back from the importance of teaching within the local church. We want to continue to hold up God's word and teach it. And we don't want to be afraid of that. In fact, we're supposed to, see, we're supposed to give our attention to it. And so it's important here to notice some of the things that Paul doesn't say. Paul's not telling Timothy, this young pastor, Timothy, man, here is the secret to grow your church from zero to 200 people in three months. Here's the techniques. Uh, these are, I don't know, maybe because I'm a pastor, these are the sponsored ads that I get. But these things pop up on my Facebook all the time. Here's a couple of my favorites. These are, these are the real um, headlines of these videos that pop up for young, church, uh, for young churches and for young pastors. One video says this, What if the church promoted like Starbucks? How to grow your youth from zero to 700 in only three years. Garrett, I'll send you that link. How to grow your church in just 28 days from 350 to 800 people. I'm like, well, that is so specific. What do we have 320 people? Is this, is this not for us? 
How to grow your church in the, 24th, in the 21st century. Pixar uses this technique. Friends, these are some of the videos that you pass around on church growth strategies. And instructions for churches to be able to grow your church. Things that you need to make sure you're giving attention to, paying attention to. Make sure you're paying attention to the way in which the production feels on a church. Make sure you pay attention to how much smoke is being used and what the lighting looks like. Make sure you're giving attention to the children's ministry or what the guest experience is like as people walk in. And I want you to hear me say this. Not all of those things are bad. I don't want you to walk in and not sit in a comfortable chair. I want you to be able to have coffee that you enjoy, that you don't fall asleep in the sermon. We want to have a quality children's ministry that parents feel comfortable dropping their children off. And we have volunteers that want to love, serve, and teach the Bible. And it's a fun environment. We want to do all those things. But often it's not a question of what a church does, but what it stresses. What is important and what it's paying attention to and expects to be able to build the church. And if within a lot of these church growth strategies, it is a technique that Pixar is using or marketing like Starbucks, friends, let me just tell you, that is us building the church and not Jesus Christ. And what we see Paul here is saying, Timothy, young pastor, young church, pay attention to what? To your life and to your teaching. Make sure you look like Jesus and make sure you sound like Jesus because, Timothy, Jesus is the one that will build your church. And it might look different than you would expect. And friends, there are things we can do to grow a crowd, but only Jesus can build a church. And we've got to make sure that we see in the New Testament what we should strive for, what we should be stressing, and what we should continue to do as a church. And here, as Paul gives practical instructions for ministry, he tells him, read the scripture publicly, make sure to preach it and apply it into the life of every person, starting with your own heart, Timothy, and make sure you're teaching it. Pay attention to that. And so he tells them, make sure that you're continuing to stress this. He continues in verse 14 then and tells him, Timothy, don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given you through prophecy, with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. We don't know exactly what this gift is that Paul's referring to. My hunch is it is the gift, particularly for Timothy, to be able to accomplish the things that Paul just told him to do as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. To be able to live a life as an example and to be able to teach and to preach. I think, that's, I think that's the gift that was then given as he was installed by the other elders as they laid hands on him. And we don't know what the prophecy is, specifically in verse 14. But Paul's telling him, Timothy, remember, in the things that you're called into in this ministry, you can't do it on your own. It is only through the gift of God and the power of his spirit that you'll be able to do this. If you rely on your own strength, you're either going to burn yourself out or you're going to make yourself into the hero of this church. He said, but don't neglect the gift because it's only through the gift or the grace of God that you can do the things that you're called to do. And this is true for us as a church. It's true for every single one of us here as Christians. The things that God has called us to do are not possible in our own strength. And so don't neglect the gift, the comforter, the counselor, and the advocate that God has given you. 
His own spirit. For everyone who believes in Jesus, God then gives us his spirit and the power of his spirit to be able to live the life that he's called us to be able to live. Don't neglect that power. Do not walk out of here thinking, okay, to be a Christian, I've just got to try harder. I've got to put my own strength into it. I've got to get my herniated back straightened out and be able to lift this thing called the Christian life. And I've got to go and I've got to do it. Friends, two things will happen if you leave here with that mentality. Either you will be able to do it and you'll become self-righteous and no one will like you. Or you'll fail miserably, which is more than likely what will happen. And you'll become defeated and feel like I'm not good enough to live this Christian life. It's just, is it for me? But friends, what we need to remember is that we can't neglect the gift that God has given us. His spirit to be able to do the things that he's called us to do. Empowered by his spirit and enlivened by his gospel, we walk out of here with a different and a transformed heart and the power of his spirit. Working harder than any of them, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but it's not I, but Christ in me. It's him that's the one that is working. So we make sure Paul writes to Timothy and tells us as well, don't neglect that gift. And so he's continuing to drive this home. You hear him in verse 15 now. Timothy, make sure you practice these things. Be committed to them. He's, again, driving it home. Your life and your teaching. Practice these things. Like a lawyer practices law. Practice them, Timothy. Make them your life's work. Be committed to them. Why? So that then your progress may be evident to all. So that your progress may be evident to all. There's an important word in here I want you, if you're a, a Bible underliner, circler, squarer, to underline, circle, or square this word progress. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, make sure, be an example. Make sure to continue to teach and to preach. Pay attention to these things. Practice these things. Be committed to these things. So that... As you do that, as you continue to imitate Jesus and be an example to others, you continue then to continue to study and know and teach what it is God has told you. As you do those things, then your progress may be evident to all. And so the reason why it's important to highlight that word is because notice that Paul does not say, then your perfection may be known to all. Paul does not say, Timothy, if you walk out of here, begin to just read the scriptures, begin to try really hard, then in a moment you'll be the perfect Christian. And your life will be together and all of your Christian hopes and aspirations will be complete. All of the sin in your life will be gone and eradicated and your perfection may be evident to all. No, he says the word progress. Now here's why that's important. Because God does not expect perfection of you today. And here's the reason why. There's someone who's already lived a perfect life for you. Friends, here's the gospel. Part of the aspect of the gospel, part of the reason why we as prodigals can run home to the Father is because we know what the Father is going to ask of us when we return. What is our thought and thinking that God the Father might do as we then maybe turn our back on Him Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. Maybe you've lived just a complete life of rebellion. And you're going today. Maybe there's something pulling on your heart going, I think I want to turn and come back to God 
today. I want to trust Jesus today. But what will he ask of me? Is he asking perfection? That I've got to be a perfect example in all of these things? I come back to him. When I get there, he's going to have this list of things to do. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And maybe you've just walked away from the church. Kind of pulled away. Living a life of apathy. And maybe today you're beginning to feel God pulling you back into a community of believers and closeness and relationship in Jesus. But again, when we come back to him in a moment where we've gone away from him, there is an inclination that we might have that God will have a to-do list for us whenever we get back. And this is true. One of the reasons we know this is true is because in the story of the prodigal son, if you read that, you see what the prodigal expects whenever he finally decides to go home. He's disrespected his father. He's taken his inheritance. He's left into a far country. He's blown all of the money. He's disrespected his family. And then he gets to a point where he's eating with pigs because he doesn't have any money to buy food. And it's at that moment he goes, man, my father has hired servants that live better than I do. I'm going to go home. But then when he makes that decision, he then begins to run through in his mind and rehearse the speech he's going to give when he gets home. Father, I don't deserve to be here and I will work as your hired hand until I pay back everything that I've took and I will earn back your acceptance and your approval. I will pay it all back. I will work for it and then you can accept me after I've done all of these things. And he's making this list. Right? This is any time we've gotten... If you remember when you were a kid and maybe you were out late, you stayed up past curfew, you realize you were like 18 hours past curfew and you're on the way home and you're rehearsing the speech in your mind that you're going to give to your parents that you know will be there. Lamp on, toe tapping. When the prodigal gets home, how does the father respond? First he was looking for him. He sees him when he was still far off. And then when he sees him, as he was looking for him, the father then runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, is filled with compassion, brings the son back into the family, and the son begins the speech. This is it. God, Father, listen, I will do all the things that I need to do to be able to pay back and for you to be able to accept me back into the family. And the father cuts him off. Like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. No, we're having a party tonight. Get the steak, get the crew, get it all together. We'll get the band going. We're going to get dancing. We're going to have a celebration. Why? Because my son, who once was lost, now is found. He has returned. There is nothing for him to earn because my love is already on him. And there is full forgiveness that met the gaze of the prodigal son when he returned. And friend, there is no difference in the gaze of God when you come back to him. Whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time. That whenever the prodigal returns, we see the heart of the father. It's not a list of things for us to do to earn back his love. Expecting then perfection now that we've come back. Never to mess up again. But to be able to embrace us fully. To show grace, to show us mercy, to show us compassion because there was one who lived a perfect life in our place. That Jesus Christ came and lived a life of perfection, a life that we were called to live, but that none of us have. And whenever he died on the cross, he died a death that we deserved, standing in the place of sinners. 
And what we see then three days later after Jesus rose from the grave, that payment that he offered the Father was accepted. And now the gospel is this, that anyone who believes and trusts in Jesus, our life is then given and transferred over to him and he pays our penalty in our place. But not only that, his life, his perfection, his perfect record, his righteousness, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, is then given to us. So when the Father sees us, He doesn't see our failure. He doesn't see the sum of our past mistakes. He doesn't then come whenever we, whenever we return home. He doesn't come bringing a list of things for us now to do. But He offers us then full forgiveness because He sees us in the perfect righteousness of His Son and we can then rest. There is nothing left to earn there is nothing left to prove, but we can rest in the finished work of Christ. And that then frees us to know that as we then strive and as Abel preached last week earlier, we train ourselves for godliness. We don't do that trying to earn God's love. We do that motivated by God's love. It becomes a response to God's saving work. And then all of our obedience, all of our work becomes praise. It becomes worship. So whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do, we do to the glory of God. And our whole lives then become living sacrifices as we then progress in the faith and look more and more like Jesus every day. Your progress may be evident to all. And so, friends, that's important to know because you may walk out of here on a Sunday morning and go, boy, I'm just ready. This is it. I love Jesus. I want him to have my life. I love what he's done for me on the cross. And I'm ready. This is it. This is it. New day. I'm going to live for you, Jesus. I'm going to go. I'm going to read the Bible this week, the whole Bible this week. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to not get like, upset with my kids in a sinful way. I'm going to, this, it's, it's all changing. And we walk out of here, and then we have a frustrating experience of that four-way stop, and it's all out the window. And you may walk out of here with the expectation for yourself of perfection, and you will walk out of here, you will fall short of that, and you will feel defeated, and you will feel disappointed. Because that's why that word is important progress are you taking a next step are you progressing do you look more like Jesus today than you did a year ago now I know that over that year it might look like this and there'll be times in which you take three steps up and eight steps back but then you'll take six steps forward one back four forward and over time you'll see if you look at a graph there is a line of progression in any one moment you zoom in, there may be moments where you've fallen. But are you progressing? That is the expectation of the Christian faith in this life today. Theologians call it progressive sanctification. Looking more and more like Jesus progressively. It's an important word for us to see, progress, and not perfection. So this is what Paul tells them. Timothy, practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Notice also the expectation is progress. Friends, if you don't grow in your like, uh, how like you look like Jesus over the next year, 10 years, then friends, there is something either that is off or perhaps you don't know him truly at all. There is progression that is expected. 
but it does take time. So Paul tells him, practice these things. Be committed to them, Timothy. And then your progress may be evident to all. And he closes in verse 16 with a summary verse. This verse really summarizes this whole section. Timothy, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Those are the categories. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things. And so he tells them, Timothy, pay close attention and persevere. And notice part of what Paul's implying there. I think, one, it's easy to overlook this. And two, it's easy to be tempted to quit. We need to make sure that we pay close attention to it because we can sometimes overlook it. There are other things within a church, within your life, that are calling for your attention. And Paul's telling Timothy and he's telling each of us, be sure you don't overlook and pay close attention to your life. Be an example. Imitating Jesus so that others can imitate you. And make sure you do the same with your teaching. As you know God, as you study Him, and then teach Him to others, God is not a subject to be uh, studied strictly. He is a person to be known. So as we know Him and teach Him, making sure we pay close attention to the truth and to persevere in these things, to not be discouraged, to not be tempted to quit. It's one of the reasons why God has given us a community and why the Christian life was not to be meant to be lived alone. So that we can spur one another on to love and to good deeds, to not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but to spur one another on to continue to persevere in these things, in our life and in our teaching. This is what Paul tells them to pay close attention to. I think back to those old cartoons. I used to watch the cartoons of Sherlock Holmes. And whenever he'd get up on a case, right, him, he'd come to a crime scene. And what would he pull out? I don't know if this is what every detective did in the 1800s. This is the only tool they had. But it felt like every detective in the 18 to 1900s had one tool to be able to solve a case. And that was a magnifying glass. Again, I've, I've only seen magnifying glasses really used with young kids in anthills and Sherlock Holmes. Like, those are the only two uses I feel like I've seen magnifying glasses. But what would, uh, what would he do with that magnifying glass? He'd show up at a crime scene. And he would hold it up and begin to try to look for things that he couldn't see on his own. He wanted to pay close attention to all of these little details that are there that other people were overlooking because it was in the small details that he would then be able to solve the case, crack the case, and solve the crime. He made sure to use that magnifying glass to pay close attention to things other people were overlooking. Friends, I think in a sense, Paul's telling Timothy here, Timothy, take your magnifying glass and make sure you pay close attention to these things, your life and your teaching, because others will overlook them. Churches will overlook them. Churches will feel like we need to pay close attention to marketing strategies or different church growth techniques. We need to make sure that we as leaders are paying attention to our holiness and to God's word, to our life and to our teaching. And even for you, As people who are in this church, people who are following Jesus, the question now for you as we close is what do you pay close attention to in your life? Or to put it another way, if someone were to hand you a magnifying glass, what is in your magnifying glass? What do you focus on? What do you pay close attention to? Would you be able to say and answer Paul 
Will Paul pay close attention to my life? I want to look like Jesus in every way. And what I say, how I act, what I love in purity and faith. And I want to make sure that I'm paying close attention to teaching. I'm paying close attention. I'm listening at church. I'm involved in community groups. I am reading your word. I am been passing it on in ministries that you have for me, whether it's in my home, in my neighborhood, at my work. I'm paying close attention to teaching. Are you paying close attention to other things in your life? What's in your magnifying glass today? Because what we pay close attention to, what we are persevering in, has ramifications and impacts, not just personally, but also publicly. And Paul closes with this. He says, because if you persevere in these things, Timothy, in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, quickly, Paul is not saying that the way in which Timothy lives and what he teaches will save himself and will save other people. This word, Paul knows we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing that we do, nothing that we boast in. There's nothing we bring to the cross except the sin that made it necessary. It's what Jonathan Edwards said. And Paul, he gets that from Paul in Ephesians 2. There's nothing that we have to boast in. So Paul's not telling Timothy, Timothy, if you teach just the right things, then everyone who hears you will be saved. No, but he is saying, again, this word save, as we see throughout 1 Timothy, Paul's using this in a sense of being able to persevere and keep people As they continue. And so Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, do you want your ministry to persevere, your life to persevere, for your church to persevere? Then make sure you then continue and pay attention to your life, to your godliness, to your holiness, and to your teaching. Because those things, how you live and what you believe, saves yourself and carries you on, of course. But it also has ramifications for those around us. Friends, your life says something to the people in your life about the God that you believe in. Your conduct, your speech, your love, your purity, that says something to other people about the Jesus that you claim to follow. There may be people that don't know Jesus apart from the Jesus in your life and through your conduct. There is public and uh, outward ramifications to your faith. Your faith is, yes, very personal, but it is also very public. And so we know that God does not need our good works. Right? We've tried to make that abundantly clear today. We try to say that all the time. The gospel is free. It is a gift. It's not a wage. You don't earn it. God doesn't need our good works in exchange for salvation. But friends, while God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. That's what Martin Luther, the great reformer, a German reformer said. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbors do. Meaning what? Meaning the way in which you live will either validate and authenticate your message or it will oppose it and show that we live as hypocrites. And so how are you living your life? And what kind of example and conduct are you showing? Are you able to be able to lift up your life and say, it's imperfect, but I'm striving to follow and look like Jesus. I want others to imitate me as I imitate them. 
Or is our life completely opposite of the life of Jesus? And if people look at our lives, we realize our lives preach a different kind of sermon than the one that Jesus has lived, the one that Jesus has preached. And we see that our life and our teaching has ramifications both on yourself and on your hearers. So the final thing I'll say as we close is to notice one more word in verse 16. And it's that word, your. Paul tells Timothy to pay close attention to whose life? Timothy, to your life. A lot of us have PhDs in everyone else's sin. And we hardly ever look at our own. And Paul tells Timothy here, Timothy, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. That doesn't mean we don't ever begin to come around and help others. This is what Jesus said, right? Take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are called to take specks out of one another's eyes, but it begins with looking at our own lives first, removing the logs from our own eyes and paying attention, close attention to your life, to your teaching. Let's not just run beyond what, what's going on with us and begin to look at what's wrong with everybody else. It makes us feel good about ourselves. But that's not how we're called to live. And so let's make sure that as a church, as church leaders, as church as a whole, as everyone here this morning, that we are paying close attention to your life and to your teaching, making sure that we want to look like Jesus and we want to sound like Jesus as we follow to believe like him. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your grace. And God, pray for you now to come and help us to continue to live for you. God, we need your power and the gift of your spirit to be able to do any of this. And so, God, we pray that you would come and do that now. Remind us, God, of the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the invitation of the Father who welcomes us home. And, God, that that radical nature of grace would transform us and truly make us different. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.